You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Four months after Democrats in the House of Representatives launched a formal impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump's dealings with Ukraine, the Senate acquitted him on charges of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress today, an outcome that was never in doubt. My guest is Harold Krant, professor at the Chicago Kent College of Law. Looking back at this process of four months and we're back to the inevitable. What's your take on the whole impeachment process? I think people looking back at this impeachment will ask themselves whether impeachment can work in an era of great partisanship. And we've seen in this impeachment proceeding much more than in Clinton and much more than in the Nixon debacle that impeachment is a pretty weak vehicle if there's a deep divisions between the two leading political parties. It's just not a successful constitutional weapon to overcome partisanship. I think that's one lesson to be learned here. And another lesson is that Congress continues to give away more and more power to the executive. One of the two articles of impeachment was contempt of Congress, meaning contempt not only of Democrats, but contempt of Republicans. But the Republicans didn't care. And we'll see this continuing shift of power over time to the chief executive, And President Trump has made much of that and will so in the future. What should Americans take away from the process? What I'm afraid is that there will be a faction of people in the United States who will become demoralized from politics even more. We'll shut down the process, believe that there's nothing to be gained from being active, from being engaged, and they will just be alienated. And whether they're alienated in a way that is destructive of the common good Who knows? I mean, some may be energized, some may become more engaged, but I'm afraid that other people will look at this and say, how can we trust the government processes? No one can get fair reporting, no one can get a fair deal, no one can get a fair trial, and they'll become sort of marginalized in society even more, and I don't think that'll benefit the American public very much. Were the framers wrong, just wrong, to require a two-thirds vote? I mean, even in the case of Andrew Johnson, the Senate couldn't get a two-thirds vote to convict him. One slightly positive thing, I think the narrative of the Republicans has changed over time. I think that's to the good. The narrative at first was that Trump didn't do anything. The narrative was this isn't a high crime or misdemeanor. And I think the narrative now has turned to one where impeachment is very serious and this was wrong, but we don't think this is serious enough to be impeachable. And that's their right to do so under history. And I think that line does less damage to impeachment as a tool. And I do think that the two-thirds majority was put in because this is a very rare and momentous constitutional action. And so the fact that it's taken seriously, I think, is good. Obviously, there was partisanship involved in this case. Um, but I do think the fact that there is a two-thirds majority, supermajority, will mean, though, that impeachment will be used probably less and less over time because the hurdle is so high. There was some talk on the Senate floor from Senator Joe Manchin of having a censure vote against the president. And the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said no. You know, we've impeached him. Would censure have been a good idea? Censure may have been a good idea and indeed may have generated a majority of both the House and the Senate. Censure was discussed at great length during President Clinton's impeachment as well. Censure, of course, has no impact. It's merely a sense of the Congress that the president has overstepped its bounds, but it does have some public resonance. And the public will know that at least the Congress has 
taken a stand and uh, taken a stand that inter interference with the upcoming election should not be countenanced. So in retrospect, that might have been a more effective result, but I think that the Congress was hoping that there would be witnesses who would change the tide of public feeling and sentiment and push towards removal from office. And of course, a censure would have left the president securely within the confines of the Oval Office. What does this say? The Senate has been called the world's greatest deliberative body. Is that title up for grabs now? I don't think so. I, I think that there was a great debate. I don't think the witnesses would have changed that much in terms of beliefs. Obviously, the House didn't have many witnesses. The House committees did, but the House itself did not. Um, and so there weren't, I don't think that the reputation of the Senate will be tarnished in any way, except for the fact that the Senate hasn't stood up for its own powers and is letting the president ride roughshod over its goals, whether in foreign affairs um, in particular, but also in trade wars and other issues during that we've seen during the uh, Trump administration. So you've written about this. What does the Senate do or what does Congress do to get powers back that it's been giving away to the president or letting the president take for decades? There are some levers in Congress's hands. The most important is Congress can say no to money. So if president wants money for the wall with Mexico, the Congress can say no. If president wants money for a particular policy in Iraq, the Congress can just say no. So that's a very critical lever. And another one, of course, is on appointments. The Senate can say no to individuals for judges whom the president selects, or the Senate can say no to treaties that the president wants to make. So these are some constitutionally based ways that the Senate and, of course, the House as well can stand on its rights against a president. And of course, they can always pass legislation and force the president to veto it. So, Harold, you said that one of the constitutional levers that Congress has against a president is to say no to money he wants. When the Congress refused to give President Trump the money to build the wall, he went around and said, I'm taking money from the military and the Department of Defense. And the Supreme Court just said, go ahead with that while the case percolates through the lower courts. And I think it's a great example because the lower courts so far have said that the president has exceeded his constitutional powers in taking those monies and in sort of defying Congress's will with respect to funding the border wall. Uh, the, the, the Supreme Court allowed the action to continue um, pending the case winding its way to the Supreme Court. Um, I think that the president's going to lose, ultimately, and I think that the Supreme Court has just tried to step in to make sure that a lot of lower court judges weren't running to halt presidential administration policies uh, before they were ventilated in the courts and wound their way up to the Supreme Court. Um, but I do think that's a great example of where Congress said no, the president bypassed Congress, and the Congress could fight and say, no more, we're not going to agree to any more appointments until you rescind your policies. Um, other Congresses have done that. And I think, again, in, if we see a shift to a Democratic Senate, you'll see those levers being used much more effectively than they have. 
and I think in the, for, the, for the country, it's a good thing to have more of a more of a check and balance between Congress and the president. Speaking about the Supreme Court and Chief Justice John Roberts, who, of course, presided over the impeachment trial, did he manage to keep himself above the partisan fray? Well, the, I, I think the real issue with Chief, Just, Chief Justice Roberts is whether his experience with this partisanship, will that affect his judging? He has been a critical fifth vote, swing vote, in a number of important Supreme Court cases, despite his conservative leanings, uh, because he does care about the integrity of the Supreme Court. And this may sort of further his beliefs that you need to have a separate Supreme Court untarnished by political leanings in order for the country to run, and the government to run smoothly. So perhaps if you want to look at a silver lining, maybe this experience will push Chief Justice to ensure that the court is seen as independent in the upcoming um, months when they start delivering their decisions. So after four months, it seems as if impeachment has helped Trump. His poll numbers have never been higher. What does that say about the process itself and whether the Democrats should have just let it go and not impeach him? Well, Nancy Pelosi consciously delayed impeachment and rejected others' calls for impeachment after the Russian investigation um, for just that reason. She was concerned that a sort of what you might consider a premature um, impeachment would boomerang against Democratic interests. Um, She waited, and when the Ukraine scandal emerged, she said, the time is right, we have to move now or, or never. Um, was she wrong? I, I don't know. I think that at that point she really had no choice but to continue on uh, with impeachment. She knew it was a risk, but I think she felt, and others around her did, it was such a serious sort of a compromise of national security, a serious compromise of any kind of ethics um, that she had to go forward and take the chance knowing that the world would be tough, and it turned out to be perhaps even tougher than she feared. Now, after the impeachment may be over, but there are still House investigations of President Trump, and House Judiciary Chair Jerry Nadler says they'll likely subpoena John Bolton. Are there, are there legal problems there? Can the president assert executive privilege? Bolton had said that he'll comply with a subpoena from the Senate, but this is a subpoena from the House. So I think that the, the, what John Bolton has said is that he would comply with the subpoena if a court would instruct him to. Um, so what he believes is that there should be an orderly process to his, his testimony. So my guess is that if the House... Subpoena him, subpoenas him, he will invite the president to respond and wait for the court to make a decision on whether he should honor the subpoena. Um, my guess is that the subpoena will be honored and that Bolton can testify, uh, though a couple of things he might say would be subject to executive privilege, and at that time, the president's lawyer can claim privilege um, with respect to at least parts of his testimony. So that would be my guess. But I think if you want to speculate in the future, something that may arise but is not likely to arise, is what if the next Congress becomes more firmly democratic 
would it try to impeach President Trump again based upon the same, largely the same evidence that led to the impeachment this time? We don't know. Impeachment doesn't seem to have a start date or end date, and it is possible that a strongly Democratic Congress in the future could go back with Bolton's testimony, new information, and decide to re-impeach him. It's never happened in our history, uh, but academics don't know whether or not the idea of impeachment is time-barred. Well, suppose, let's just say, that President Trump becomes even more emboldened by the fact that he was acquitted and does something that the Democrats feel is, again, an abuse of power. Is there anything stopping them from impeaching him on a whole new set of facts? Oh, there's no question that the Democrats can impeach President Trump again on based on new facts. But what we don't know is whether the impeachment can cover ground for which the Senate has already acquitted. Um, because the rules in impeachment are not like that, those in criminal trials. We don't have any kind of, of double jeopardy sense or notions. Um, so Congress, the House would be free to impeach President Trump for new reasons, but might also be able to include reasons that led to the acquittal in this case. Thanks for being on Bloomberg Law, Harold. That's Harold Cranch, a professor at the Chicago Kent College of Law and author of the book Presidential Powers.